Although we currently reside in the United States, most of us in Houston or the nearby areas, this is not really our home. Our citizenship, as Paul says, is in heaven. This is not to say that we have no responsibilities in our current place of residence. Surely we do. We are to be good stewards of that which we have been given. We are called upon by God to be honest citizens of our country, participating when appropriate in the political process. We should be informed citizens, and we should vote. When called by God to do so, we should not shy away from serving in government or in the military, police or fire. We have the responsibility to do the best we can with what we have, being ambassadors for Jesus Christ along the way. I frankly don't have much respect for those who accept the benefits of a free society and yet act as if they have no responsibilities to that society. Of course the Christian has responsibilities to his country. But ultimately, this is not our home. This is where we live now, but this is not where we'll spend eternity. Our permanent citizenship is in heaven, so our ultimate loyalty belongs there. Our citizenship is in a place that we've never been, but one day we're going to go, and when we go, then we won't come back. I think I counted it up properly. I moved, our family moved 18 times before I was 16 or 16 times before I was 18. I can't remember the exact number. Because my dad was in the oil field, he was a rock bit engineer, and we went to wherever the rigs were. That's just what you did. That's what you did. And I think it actually helped me, not didn't hurt me, but sometimes we didn't really know what state we were in from time to time. A lot of us will move around different places in the United States, but ultimately we're going to get to heaven and then we're not going to move anymore. Once we're there, we're going to stay. We'll stay there for eternity in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, because the old things have passed away. It's going to be a wonderful place. But we're not there yet. But that's where our citizenship is. In a similar, although admittedly not identical way. We see this idea played out in the lives of Jacob and Joseph in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 50 records the aftermath of the death of Jacob and then the death of Joseph. At the times of their death, they lived in Egypt. But their citizenship, in a sense, wasn't in Egypt. But it was in the land that was promised to Father Abraham. Jacob's grandfather, Joseph's great-grandfather. Both of these men died in a place that was ultimately not their home. And both make an issue of that fact when it came time for them to depart. Neither of these two men, neither Jacob or Joseph, lived on earth to see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But both were confident that one day that covenant would be fulfilled, literally fulfilled. Not transferred to another group like the church, but literally fulfilled in the family of Abraham. Both of them were confident. Even though both of them died 
in a land that was not the land of the promise. It's clear to me that they didn't know exactly how God was going to bring all this about. But they were confident that he would. The book of Genesis ends with the promise yet unfulfilled. But with the confident expectation that it would be. God keeps his promises. He is going to keep his promises to Abraham. And he's going to keep his promises to you. This is so important. This is not just a dry theological discussion that needs to happen in faculty meetings at seminaries. There's much more to that, to this than that. For if God will not keep his promise to Abraham in the way that he made it, then what makes you think he's going to keep any of his promises to you in the way that he made them? He has promised you that if you will but trust him, that if you'll cast everything else aside, all our human works, all our goodness, and just trust him, come to him with the empty hands of faith, that he will save you, that he will rescue you, and that you will spend eternity in heaven with him. Now, you expect that to be literally fulfilled. You expect to take God at his word. You expect to be able to actually trust him. In whatever words you choose to do it, I know sometimes on salvation tracks they have prayers that you can pray. Some people are are saved that way, some people, I don't know. But you take it literally. You expect that God's going to take care of you. We wouldn't like it very much if we got up to heaven, if we died and and we went up to heaven, or at least stood before God, and he said, well, you know what? You weren't as good as you should have been after salvation. In fact, there were whole stretches of your life where I could barely tell if you believed in me or not. In fact, you didn't show me that you loved me by keeping my commandments for for perhaps a year, two years at a time. So I kind of changed my mind. And we're going to reset the rules as to how you get up here. You know, that's what some people do with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. We're going to study that next week in a wrap-up lesson that we have of Genesis. It was unconditional. It was conditional for Abraham. He had to go to begin with. But once the covenant was made, it was unconditional. And people act like it's conditional. Listen, there is an unconditional covenant that's made to you too. And that is, if you will do this, then you will be saved. There are no conditions that are going to be added after the fact. That would make God some sort of monster. He's no monster. He's the most loving, tender-hearted father in all the universe. And he keeps his promises. And that's what we see as Genesis chapter 50 ends. And that's what we see as the book of Genesis closes. The promise is yet unfulfilled here. But both of these men are confident that the promise would be fulfilled. As chapter 49 came to a close, we learned of the death of Jacob. As chapter 50 opens, we observe the reaction of Joseph to the death of his father. He is deeply moved. Deeply moved. It's not as though the other brothers didn't grieve. I'm sure they did. But in the final years of Jacob's life, like it was when Joseph was a youth, the relationship between the father Jacob and the son Joseph seems to be the closest relationship in that family. It's true that people grieve differently. Some grieve quietly, with very little open expression, very little outward expression. And then others grieve with transparent and unashamed emotion. Some of this is culturally influenced and some of it's not. 
we're all hardwired differently in this area. It's next to impossible for any of us to determine with any kind of certainty at all the depth of a relationship that existed between two people based upon the emotional response of the surviving party after the other has departed. It's virtually impossible. Only that person really knows. And you can't just go by the outward expression. I've observed adult children deeply upset, showing outward expression of that being upset at the death of a parent. Not so much because they enjoyed a great relationship with that parent. But in fact, exactly the opposite. They had little to no relationship with their deceased parent. And they felt deeply regretful of that. So they showed an outpouring of emotion, but it had nothing to do with the, with the closeness of the relationship between them and the one that died. Sometimes people really regret the fact that they didn't have a deeper relationship. You know, sometimes we just wait too long to pick up the phone and make that call. And we have regrets about it. I've also observed people who I knew to have a very close relationship with a parent, sibling, spouse, friend, and show little to no emotion at the passing of their beloved. The expression of emotion is a very personal and often very private matter. We should be careful not to judge too harshly. Matter of fact, we should be careful not to judge at all the emotional reaction of someone else when they grieve like that. Let's let people grieve in the way that they grieve. Who are we to stand in judgment on people for that? We don't know what's going on in their soul. Let them be who they are. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is deep grief. This is outward expression. Unashamed outward expression. His brothers are there in the room. He doesn't care. Jacob departs. He takes his last breath, presumably... Joseph closes his eyes, as had predicted he would, and then he falls on his face and kisses him. It's one thing to weep tears of regret when you know you could have done better, much better. It's another thing to weep when all in all you know you did the best you could. No two human relationships are perfect. Even the best are not perfect. And it's, it is another thing altogether to lose a loved one, at least even temporarily, but to lose them and know you had a great relationship. That hurts. But if there was any regret for Joseph, I don't think it was that he was not close enough to his father. It might have been that his brothers denied him years of fellowship with his father. That might very well have been part of his outward expression, but we would just be speculating. And I don't really care for speculation. In areas where the Bible's silent, we probably ought to leave it that way. I'm sure that Joseph had every confidence that he would see his father again. Just like many of you have lost loved ones who are believers in the Lord Jesus and have every confidence that you're going to see that person again. But the reality is that death is painful. Death is painful, even though we are confident of a future reunion. Death was never supposed to be the norm. 
That's why it's painful. We weren't designed for death. Death is a result of the fall. Death is a result of Adam's sin in the garden, both spiritual and physical death. We don't need to forget that. Physical death is a part of it, too. He died spiritually immediately, but then he subsequently died died physically. Death was never supposed to be the norm. Death deprives us of our loved one's company for a period of time. Sometimes for a long period of time, and sometimes it's a short period of time, but if we love them, we want to be with them. You don't have to apologize to me, your friends, or anybody else if you weep over the death of a loved one. Now here's the catch. We grieve. We all grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. If we slide over into grief that turns into bitterness or anger toward God, or to where we're giving a public testimony that we have no hope whatsoever of seeing that person again, and we know they're a believer, that could certainly be classified as sinful. I'll give you that. But aside from that, we grieve because death is painful. Let me just make it as clear as we can. It is no sin to grieve the death of a loved one. Grief can turn into sin, but it is no sin in itself to grieve the death of a loved one. I think one of the challenges for the believer who has lost a spouse, a sibling, son or a daughter, who is a believer, believer to believer, I think one of the biggest challenges is for that believer to function in spite of the grief. Or perhaps better put, to function through the grief. Grief is going to come. But life also goes on. And we have to function in spite of that grief until the Lord sovereignly decides that it's time to take us home. In verse 2 of chapter 50, verses 2 and 3, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Embalming was an Egyptian practice, not so much a Jewish practice. Joseph had Jacob embalmed because that was the cultural situation he was in, but also because of Jacob's insistence that he be taken back to the land for burial. So that's why embalming was necessary. The Jews handled the bodies of their deceased with respect and with honor, typically burying them the same day. Not because there was any life left in that body, but because life had been in that body. That's why we should treat the corpse with respect. And that's why, frankly, I don't care a lot for some of the new movies and TV shows where people are laughing over autopsies and cutting, making jokes and things like this. It makes me cringe just a little bit. Because it's numbing our society to the value of that body. Because that body is not an enemy of the soul. That's a Platonic idea. That's an old Greek idea. The body is the partner of the soul in doing the work of God for his own glorification. So we should respect that body. Even after the soul has departed. It shouldn't just be thrown out the window. It should be treated with respect. Now there are a lot of different ways to do that. But it should be treated with respect. The Egyptians were not the only people, ancient people, to practice embalming, but they were the pioneers of the field. I won't go into the specifics of the practice this morning. It's a very interesting study if you ever want to do it on your own. You can look up a lot on the Internet, and they'll tell you exactly how it was done. But 
most likely, the, the text here says 70 days, the Egyptians wept for him or they mourned for him. Most likely, the 40 days of embalming and the 70 days of weeping overlapped. They, so they probably grieved for another 30 days after the embalming process was finished. That would have been consistent with the accounts of the honor that was due to Pharaoh's. This is really interesting. The Egyptians typically mourned over their pharaohs for 72 days. And they mourn over Jacob for 70. This man who's a patriarch in a place that is not his home is still given the honor that's due the heir of the Abrahamic covenant even by people that don't know anything about the Abrahamic covenant. This is how God can work this out. This is beautiful. In verses 4 through 6, And when the days of mourning were for him were past... Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave, which I have dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. Then in verses 7 through 14, these verses record that Joseph did take the body back to Canaan for burial with quite a funeral process, a procession rather, consisting of Joseph and his brothers, along with a contingent of high-ranking Egyptian governmental officials, complete with chariots and horsemen. This is for a foreigner. This is for, a, this is for Joseph's dad. Quite a procession. Only the younger children stayed behind, presumably with their moms. As they came close to the spot where the burial would take place at the cave of Machpelah, the entire procession stopped and they mourned again for seven days. This is demonstrating great honor to Jacob. I should mention, it's very important to mention, that the times of mourning mentioned here in this text, 70 days, seven days, are in no way prescriptive. They're descriptive, but they're not prescriptive. What that means is you, you, someone shouldn't come to you with this text and say, okay, it's been 70 days now since your husband passed away. It's time to quit crying. Or it's been 40 days now since you lost your child. It's time to quit grieving. No, a thousand times no, that's a grotesque misunderstanding of, of Scripture when you do that. Some things are descriptive. Some things we just read them. This was an Egyptian practice. They're not necessarily descriptive. Flea fornication is descriptive. Is or not, it's prescriptive. This is descriptive. It's not a command. So don't let anyone make you feel guilty because it's been six months now and you still have a knot in the pit of your stomach over the loss of your child or your spouse or your friend, whatever it may be. Oh, I think we can be so cruel to each other sometimes. Now, there's, there's one thing to see someone in abnormal grief and come alongside and say, hey, now listen, you know they're in heaven. We've got to get through this. That's one thing. It's another altogether to condemn them because they're not grieving in the way that you think that they should grieve or the way that you're hardwired to grieve. After the days of mourning, Jacob is then buried at the cave of Machpelah as per his wishes, and then the procession returns to Egypt. Then the brothers get worried. 
Now, Godfather Parts 1 and 2 had not been done at that time, so they couldn't have watched that and known why they should have been worried. (laughs) But they get the idea into their head that Dad's gone now. Maybe that's why we're still alive. Maybe Joseph's been waiting until the death of Dad and let's get him buried, like Michael did in Godfather 2 with his brother. Maybe that's what they're waiting for. So these guys get scared now. They've learned nothing about Joseph. They know nothing of his character. They're inserting their evil into him. They're transferring it into him, as we often do. But they want to know if Joseph's going to take revenge upon them now that Jacob is gone. What a misunderstanding. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive me, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for all they did wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Come on. (laughs) There's no record of that ever happening. These fellows, they've made great progress, haven't they? They've made great progress, but they still have a long way to go spiritually. This is as... As my daddy used to say, a bald face lie, whatever that means. I never, I never had a chance to ask him exactly what is a bald face lie, but it's a bad lie, I guess. This is an open lie that they're trying to save their next spy. Joseph weeps again. I think he weeps because, is this what you think of me? This is what you think of me? That as soon as dad died, I'm going to murder you? That I'm going to do the same thing to you that you tried to do to me? No. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. This is not good. Verse 18, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. As if that was going to help if Joseph had intentions to kill him. That wasn't going to help anyway. But listen to these next two verses. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Am I God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's statement in verse 20 is one of the classical theological statements in Genesis and actually in the whole of Scripture on the subjects of God's sovereignty and his providence. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God can take even the most evil decisions of man and work them out for good. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes of this subject when he said, For we know that God works all things together for good, for those that love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Joseph is mature in his faith. He's not naive. He knows that his brothers had evil intentions. This is not sweeping it under the rug and said, oh, I I realize you didn't really mean it back then. No, they meant it. And Joseph knew that they meant it. And he recognizes that fact before them. No, no, I realize you meant it for evil. You meant to kill me, but God overrode your evil decisions. But he intends to take no vengeance. Because as he said, am I God? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's one of the hardest things for human beings, especially male human beings. 
to handle. To let God take vengeance. I suppose females may have a problem with it too, but I know males have a problem. He has no emotional need for vengeance. They made a free will decision to harm him. God overrode their intention and turned it out for good. Interestingly, not just for Joseph's good. You know who else he turned it out for good for? The very ones that were going to do the evil. The very ones that did the evil. It turned out good for them too. What an amazing God we have. One that can allow us free will and yet never lose control. That's amazing. It's beyond my comprehension. Some would like to reason that if God is in control, then our will is not actually free. But that reasoning is not valid in view of the factual information we have from Scripture. God is not at all intimidated by our free will. I hope you know that. He can give me free will and still be perfectly in control. Perfectly in control. We have free will given to us by God, but God is sovereign. Both of those facts are true. They're not contradictory. They're both true. And finally, the book of Genesis comes to an end with the death of Joseph. Joseph dies as a relatively young man. You might be glad to hear this. At least when compared to his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Abraham, you'll recall, died at 175 years old. Isaac died at 180 years old. Jacob died at 147 years old. Joseph dies at 110 years old. Relatively young man compared to his ancestor. I won't go into all the details of how this is figured out, but Joseph is in his late 50s when Jacob dies. Probably around 57. So about 50 years have passed between verses 21 and then in verses 22. But to conclude the book, look look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph trusted Yahweh to bring about the blessings that he had had made to his great-grandfather Abraham. He didn't know how it was going to be accomplished. Most of the time, we don't. I have every confidence that God is going to take care of me. I have no clue sometimes how he's going to do it. And sometimes that's what makes me so amazed at the God that I worship, is that he does it in ways that I would have never figured out. It's happened to me countless times. And I mean that literally, not in some sort of hyperbole. I can't tell you the number of times God has taken care of me in ways that I didn't pray for him. Matter of fact, I might have prayed for something else. And he overrode that prayer and gave me something that was so much better. He didn't know how it was going to be accomplished, but he knew it would be accomplished. And then finally, Joseph's body stayed in Egypt for 400 years. And then was brought up out of Egypt when the Jews left in the Exodus. The scriptures later tell us in the book of Joshua that Joseph was buried at Shechem.